This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Anthea Butler. She's the Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Graduate Chair in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Butler has made appearances on the BBC, MSNBC, CNN, the History Channel, and PBS. She's also contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and The Guardian. She's the author of several books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right. Dr. Butler, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we've officially been in at least the lockdown mode of this pandemic. Uh, we're recording this almost a, a year to the date um, of, of the shutdown. What's this experience been like for you? Miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because, you know, I say miserable, but... Uh, 
You know, I, I've been really upfront about this with everybody. So I travel a lot for things that I was actually on leave when the pandemic started. And so I started quarantining on March the 11th. And then by St. Patrick's Day, I had the coronavirus. So I started off with it right up top. And, and I like to tell people, I'm like, I'm usually a first adopter. In this case, I wish I hadn't been. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it did frame a lot of what was happening. And my book I had started working on before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic happened, it was it was really tough because not only was I sick, but it was just like, you know, you can't go out, you can't do anything, you don't have the conversation partners. And there's a sense of, I, I would say here on the East Coast, because it, it started out very differently, a, a real palpable sense of fear for everyone because nobody knew where was, this was going. And, and then everything else was so crazy with, you know, shoot bleach in your brain, uh, veins and everything. And, you know, a lot of religious people saying, well, we want to go back to church. And I'm like, we can't go back to church. It became kind of this really weird, frustrating time, but also a good time for introspection. So I think on the, at a year in, I would say that it hasn't been good, but it hasn't been horrible. And that I think it's a, a way in which we all had a year to kind of reconsider where we are and what we're doing and to think about what that means, you know? And I think for me, that's really important. And I've been thinking about how, you know, how things are gonna change on the other side of this. Well, certainly the pandemic has, um, has given us more space and time for many to um, look at some important issues that are happening around the world and within our country that maybe they wouldn't um, have been as focused on if, you know, quite literally many people just had to stay at home. Um, yeah. You know, before we get to some of the aspects of that conversation, I wonder if there's something you haven't been able to do for the last year that when we possibly return to this, whatever new normal looks like sometime this summer, what, what's that one thing you're just like, I've got to go do it? I see my parents. I mean, <laughs> that's like the number one thing for me is like to see my parents, you know, I have older parents and I haven't seen them in over a year. And actually, it, it kind of dovetails with the other thing I really want to do, which is travel. And I think it's been really tough for those of us who are used to getting around and doing stuff and being in different places to have to stay still and be in one spot. So I'll have to travel to see my parents, but it'll be like, you know, the opportunity to travel again, which will be really good, even though it won't be far, but it'll be far enough away to feel like it's like a foreign trip for me this time. The other aspect of, of your work is, you know, I've been following it for the last couple of years and reading several of your books. I always like to ask people, especially people who uh, are in the field of expertise that you're in is why religious studies? What, what was it for you that, that drew you to this topic? I've always been interested in religion. It has not been something that um, wasn't, I mean, I grew up Catholic in a Baptist state, Texas. So, you know, when you're out of mass in 45 minutes and all of your friends are in church for four hours, you have to figure out why you're at the buffet and they're not. So, I mean, I think it started there, but I've always been interested in, I actually went back, um, I did my master's and my PhD a little bit later in life. So that wasn't a trajectory from directly from undergrad to grad, but my trajectory was one of, I've always had an interest in religion and 
you know, I could, I could get it out by going first to Fuller Seminary and then doing my PhD at Vanderbilt. So you've got a, a new book out, um, White Evangelical Racism. You invite readers through um, a challenging review of a historical trajectory of this moment in which the vast majority of white evangelical uh, Americans support a political engine fueled by hatred, power, and racism. You wrote, for evangelicals, Christian race, America, and belief are synonymous. Christian is, Christianity is whiteness as well as belief. It is this conflation that causes evangelicals to ignore racism. Why was now the time to write this book? Well, I, I would say that it just, it just so happened to, to dovetail with where we are right now in terms of the insurrection and the Capitol and everything. But I've been probably writing around this book, I'd say, for the last 10 years. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I think that what I've seen in the world of evangelicalism is a continual hardening of, you know, not just belief, but also about policies and about practices. And I think that what, what makes this book so important right now is that it's not so much about Trump, but it's about why evangelicals gravitated to him and why this whole history of evangelicalism needs to be challenged. I think that, you know, you said the beginning title of my book, but you didn't say the other part, which is actually the really important part. And, you know, white evangelical racism draws you in. The, the subtitle is the one that's really the kicker, the politics of morality in America. And there have been a certain kind of politics that, are, that evangelicals have espoused, and they have a lot to do with family and morality and things like that. But the reality of how evangelicals deploy that is very different. And they deploy it in terms of doing two things. One is to promote themselves over and against other groups in the country. And the second way is to, you know, absolve themselves of guilt if, if there's an abortion or, you know, some kind of, you know, sexual misconduct or things like that. But it's also used as a, as a basically like a bludgeoning instrument for anybody else who doesn't believe like they do. You know, morality ends up being, oh, you know, that's something you sinners don't, you know, don't have, but it's something we have. But every time you see an evangelical leader fall, you know, everybody starts to talk about forgiveness. And we, we know what that theology is of Jesus, Jesus's death, right? And that Jesus died for everyone. But it seems like in the evangelical world, Jesus only dies for evangelical sins and not for everybody else's. So the term evangelical has has become so commonplace that most assume they know who this group is while at the same time many groups associated with white evangelicalism have tried to distance themselves from the 82 percent represented in the 2016 election of donald trump as president i know this might sound super silly but will you define for us white evangelicalism sure and i actually have it in the book so i'm just going to turn to the book and read this to you because I think that this is really important for a piece of this. And I, I want it out of the book in part because I think it's really important for people to understand where I'm coming from. Before diving in, I wanna be clear about my, what my working definition of evangelicalism is in this book. The word white in the title, white evangelical racism is about the construction of evangelicalism from the theological to the political. If one takes the purest definition of evangelical, that is spreading the gospel, 
then there are many Christians who believe that they should spread the message of Jesus Christ to the world. That includes believers of all races. In the American context, evangelical means different things in different centuries. In the 19th century, the term evangelical was about missionary work, spreading the gospel to the heathen, and you can read that as ethnic groups other than white, and was embraced by by people who were both for and against slavery. In the 20th century, evangelicalism became a term that was used internally as a boundary-making enterprise to wall off evangelicals who embraced an identity different than fundamentalists who believed that the Bible was both inerrant and infallible. By the 1950s and the entrance of Billy Grant, evangelist Billy Graham, evangelicalism had mainstreamed itself, and in the words of George Marsden, an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham. Now, that's straight from my book, and I, I do that in part because I think evangelicalism means different things at different times, whether we're talking about 19th, 20th, or 21st century. In the current context that we're in, I think that evangelicalism means a particular kind of Christian voting block in America that is predominantly white, that is predominantly um, basically about male leadership, and predominantly uh, theologically conservative, yet not conservative in terms of the ways in which it votes for um, candidates. It's more about um, how are the candidates going to get to the place where they do the kinds of things that evangelicals need them to do, like you know, Supreme Court justices, uh, judges across the country, um, the kinds of things that are interest to evangelicals, which are you know, education, abortion, things like that. So those would be my definitions. And I realize for a lot of people that seems to have a lot of give, but I think we need to come out of this definitional of evangelicalism as the Bevington quadrilateral, because I think that a lot of people think that that is evangelical should be a theological definition when it's clearly not being used that way by evangelicals themselves or the media. So I'd like to continue to set the landscape for the conversation. For for many white evangelicals, they will verbally denounce historically proven acts of systematic racism, such as chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws. However, they may have a hard time recognizing the institutional, systematic, uh, systemic, the the cultural forms of racism that they endorse today, maybe without even meaning to. So what are some of the common forms of racism that most people don't recognize, uh, at least from the white evangelical movement? Yeah, I'll give you one big example. When you talk about, you know, um, law abiding or um, basically what what has happened with Black Lives Matter. I think that's really important. So a lot of people will say, uh, you know, we're for law enforcement and all that. And don't get me wrong, that's that's really important. But they don't have the they don't have the historical tools to think about what those statements mean when they when they make them. So in other words, we could just we just need law and order. Law and order is very important. Well law and order is about how you subjugate people post reconstruction period when you're trying to um, not allow African-Americans to vote or to hold political office and things like that. So that's, that's one way in which people don't do it. They don't understand it in terms of, of language and speech. So when we start to talk about you know, how people should behave in church, and I talk about this in, in, in the book, is how is it that you know, cultural practices are uh, poo-pooed upon, uh, you know, ecstatic worship or singing or and this could go not just for African-Americans, it could be for Latinos or Asians or anybody else, as about you know, how everybody is forced to conform to a certain kind of worship style. 
And I think the most important thing in evangelicalism, especially, is that people tend to think about racism as being, you know, individual sin. And and the first thing you'll hear a lot of evangelicals say is, well, I'm not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body, you know. But at the same time, you are accepting of practices and voting for policies that may be, you know, racist in their very formation. Or you may say things like, well, you know, Black Lives Matter is, you know, X number of things that have been said in the press that are all wrong, right? And I don't want to make this about Black Lives Matter. I think it's a, it's a different issue. If we want to think about this in terms of history, which is what I'm dealing with in this book, let's take somebody as ubiquitous as Martin Luther King Jr. What did evangelicals say about him back then? He was a communist because he wanted civil rights. I mean, and, and, and somebody as big as Billy Graham, who you would expect would be for civil rights and all this, really wasn't and waffled back and forth about how he felt the civil rights movement should happen. He felt that it should be gradualism. And most people are kind of like gradualists in a way. They don't want to see big change. They don't want to change the makeup of their schools. It would be very difficult for them to think about, you know, oh, would I be able to send out a black pastor instead of having a, a white pastor? So I think, you know, these are the kinds of things that I'm trying to show evangelicals through a historical lens that are the ways in which evangelicals have, you know, maybe maybe they didn't intend to, but they embraced racism and it benefited them. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK's Flourish Center has an exciting opportunity for youth leaders. Is your youth program at your church led by a lay leader who would love some youth ministry education but isn't able to complete a full master's degree? Introduction to Youth Ministry and Essential Topics in Youth Ministry are two workshops that are currently being offered online for youth leaders taught by experienced CBF youth ministers. Essential Topics in Youth Ministry includes six sessions and is only $50. The course begins on April 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Videos are already pre-recorded for all six sessions for Introduction to Youth Ministry and are available now for just $25. Visit flourish.bsk.edu to register today. You've noted that this recent bewildering support of politicians and political parties that seemingly disregard the basic tenets of the Christian faith is, is nothing new. You wrote, in fact, the supporting the status quo, slavery, and segregation prove evangelicals' inability to deal with the racism at the core of evangelical beliefs, practices, and political allegiances. At the root of all this, what is the theological worldview that that justifies such things? Male headship. <laughs> That's probably not the answer you thought you were going to get. But I mean, I think this this idea about biblical headship. In, and, you know, um, the ways in which, you know, Christ is the head of the church and the man is the head of the household and, and, and on down, right? I mean, that instantiates, you know, white male supremacy, unfortunately. And the ways in which people think about that are, well, we know we have white male leadership, so this is how it should continue. And this is how it should be. And whether we're talking about women in the workplace or African-Americans or people from other ethnic groups, you know, ascending to political power or people ascending to political power who aren't Christians at all, this <clears throat> messes with that particular kind of worldview. And so from the theological perspective, I think that, you know, you could say that. You could, I could take it from a Calvinist viewpoint 
I mean, this book is not about that, but if I were going to write it from a Calvinist viewpoint, I'd have to back up another couple hundred years so I could start to talk about predestination and the ways in which predestination has predestination predestined some people to be subjugated. It's how the Dutch, you know, end up going to do slavery. It's how things happen in, you know, South Africa and you get apartheid. There's so many ways in which, you know, the theologies that people believe are subject to making other people subject to whiteness. And I think that's a really important thing to start to think about and consider. And lastly, but most importantly, I mean, we don't get American slavery without people believing that the Bible justifies it, that the Bible, you know, was very clear about it. And that is a theological position that for many people was an important one and unfortunately still gets taught in sort of fundamentalist, you know, places today. I think for, for many that grew up evangelical but have left the movement were aghast at the blatant support uh, of Donald Trump for the presidency and in the presidency as, as a person who embodies so many things that contradict Jesus. But what was so shocking for the support was that it came after years of evangelicals denouncing the Christian faith of Barack Obama, labeling him as, an, as the Antichrist and as a radical Muslim. And it's only started, uh, you know, these videos circulating on the internet denouncing Joe Biden's Catholicism. But it's so much more than this. It, it's the political association with supporting xenophobia and police brutality and classism and homophobia and transphobia and sexism and so much more, all while praying at rallies while racism is on full display or, or no regard to the vile hatred peddled on their TVs before heading out the door to go to church. Um, What's at the root of all this? <laughs> oh, there's a lot. I mean, I think a comfort level, and I think what's at the root of all this is is a way in which to sort of, there's, there's a couple of things. One is to push back any sense of conviction about what they're hearing because their pastors are saying it. So in other words, it's not just because they hear it on TV and a certain te television station, right? It's being reinforced in pulpits. It's it's a sense in which one of the things that the book is showing is about this, this move towards the Republican Party and how the Republican Party has become a part and parcel of evangelicalism and vice versa. Evangelicalism has become a part of the Republican Party. So the kinds of things where, where evangelicals used to talk about the last days, right? And Jesus was going to come back really soon and you needed to be prepared for that. Now the last days are what if the Democrats take over? What if Joe Biden gets into office? This is gonna be terrible, right? This is what we heard in the 2020 election cycle or what it was it that Donald Trump said that Joe Biden was gonna get rid of God. I'm like, he's the most Catholic person ever. I don't think he's getting rid of God anytime soon. So these things are predicated on fears and they're predicated on some things that are endemic to evangelicalism. One is fear, one is the sense of persecution, the persecution narrative of evangelicals is a really important one that developed in the in the latter part of the 20th century about them being a group on the outside and part of that was about you know taking away um, tax exempt status for schools like Bob Jones or um, the taking away of prayer in schools right that was sort of a cultural issue that scared a lot of evangelicals and made them think that they were under siege and under assault so that kind of language. And those kinds of things help you to start to think about how do you how do you get back in the in the game? How do you you know usurp your 
particular kind of cultural milieu over everybody else in America. And one way to do that is to join in with the Republican Party um, that you know embrace them, starting with the Ronald Re- with the Reagan administration going forward. Names institutions, organizations, denominations. Um, There is a lot of pinpointing specific persons and groups within this book. Why is it so important to not just talk about evangelicalism as this concept, but rather as flesh and blood, brick and mortar, that there were and are active participants in racism? Because I don't want anybody to say that this is just a book about me having a grudge about being of evangelicals. I'm a historian at heart, and all the stories that I tell in the book are very important because they weave a narrative, and that narrative is, if you think you haven't been racist, think again, and think about the ways in which racism has affected the whole entire movement. And so that's why it was important for me from the 19th century to talk about, you know, denominational splits, to the 20th century to talk about Billy Graham and race, and to talk about, um, you know, different different figures within the evangelical movement, like Jerry Falwell and others, who become very important figures, to the 20th, 21st century to think about George Bush and his participation in all of this. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, out and out anti-Black racism. In his particular case, what happens during his, you know, not just the run, but when he is in office is the anti-Islamic stuff. So I think there's lots of different ways to talk about racism within evangelicalism. And the other part of this, which is really important, is that evangelicals have been in control of writing their own history. So they've always written good histories. The histories that we see from George Marsden or Thomas Kidd or, you know, Mark Knoll and others, all these people have had a project about writing about evangelicalism from the point of view of evangelicals. But none of those histories, which I know them all, I learned them, I learned them in seminary in my PhD program. They don't want to deal with race, so they deal with race in very cursory ways, but they don't deal with the facts of what did evangelicals do to other evangelicals, to be their black evangelicals or whatever. And I start off by talking about Tom Skinner, who's an important black evangelical in the 1960s and the 70s, who really challenges people at the Urbana Conference about the racism within evangelicalism. So I'm not telling a story that people don't know. I think I'm telling a story that people would like to forget. And that's the difference. As a historian, uh, specifically in the field of religion, you've measured the totality of religious people's capacity for inhumane carnage. As you were writing and researching for this book, what were some of the uh, particular moments in history or certain figures that, that that just genuinely shocked you by the level of public endorsement of racism? <laughs> you know, I, I, w- I would say, you know, basically, I'd say, you know, Billy Graham is one of them. When you when you take Billy Graham and you really start to dig down, you know, the kinds of things you find out about him, and I won't give away a couple of the stories I have in the book, you, you'll be surprised because you think, I didn't think this about Billy Graham. I didn't think he was this kind of person. And he turns out he is. So that's that's one. I think I've, I, I, you know, when I start to look at all of this, I think about, you know, other folks, you know, involved like Jerry Falwell and others and about how, you know, vehement they, they were about racism or about, you know, individuals who were, you know, part and parcel of all the Islamophobia. And I think, you know, honestly, if I'm going to put it on two people, 
Billy Graham and Franklin Graham are my two most shocking people to me because Franklin Graham is always willing to double down on the racism. And I think that that's a really, that's a, that's a big problem for him, you know, and, and probably also too, in a way, Sarah Palin, because Sarah Palin sort of represented a moment for evangelicals, but it was also a moment in which everybody was so happy to see her because she was a woman and she was an evangelical woman and she didn't get an abortion. And, but at the same time, the, the ways in which she deployed that racism in the um, run up to the 2008 election and then afterwards becomes a really important kind of framework in which Trump used later on and that evangelicals resonated to. Let's go back to, to, to Billy Graham for just a second. Um, you know, I, I think, first of all, I think a lot of people see through the sham that is Franklin Graham. Um, and, yeah. you know, but when you start to talk about his father for many white evangelicals, I mean, he's, he's in the pantheon of, of the great ones, you know, and, and we're at this place right now in our culture in which when you talk about figures like that, people immediately begin mm-hmm. to, to tune you out and to shut you down mm-hmm. and, to, you know, this recent ploy of whole, you know, cancel culture thing. And, and we're, we feel like we're at this impasse of like, just not listening and learning from each other. So what is it going to take, uh, you know, for us to, to create a, a capacity by which um, that we're not speaking in megaphones to each other, but we're finding ways to talk about hard things like, yeah, Billy Graham um, was a racist. And it's, it's, here's the evidence that's seen here. You know, how, how do we have those conversations? And I'm talking about conversations with people who are never going to pick up your book and read it. You know, people that just yeah. aren't there, but the people that many of our listeners are pastoring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, introducing them to pieces of history. I mean, one of the great things about this book is that you can, you can use things out of it and talk about it. So if you want to talk about Billy Graham, you could say, you know, Billy Graham invited, you know, Martin Luther King to a certain event to pray on, you know, you got to read the book and find that out. But that later on, it wasn't that cordial relationship, right? You can talk about that. You can talk about the ways in which Billy Graham, you know, the tapes of Billy Graham talking about Jews and the, and the Nixon thing really was a, a big deal. And when those tapes came out, he was mortified, you know, and, and that's, that's just as racist as being racist against black people. Right. And I think that history helps you to talk about things. So one of the things I'm hoping that happens with my book is that people use it for book clubs and things like that so that they can read and sort of discuss history. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do is not so much about, you know, I want to create fights or I want to cancel somebody. I mean, I think it's personally hard to cancel somebody like Billy Graham. I mean, you know, full disclosure, I'm going to be on an American experience about Billy Graham in two months that's going to run in, in, in May. And I think it's been well done in terms of giving a balance about, you know, Billy Graham's life. I mean, there are great things to say about him that are really good, but there are also things that we need to say that are not so good. And I think that this idea that everything has to be just straight up black and white, right? And, and I mean that deliberately because I think sometimes we just think about racism as just being black and white too, and it's not. I think that we need to understand that there is nuance and that it's important for evangelicals to understand a different history about themselves because if they don't understand a fuller history about themselves, 
then what ends up happening is, is that they believe, you know, what is it that it says in scripture that the lie became the truth? And maybe in this particular case about evangelicals, the lies that they've told about themselves have become the truth and they can't see what the truth is. And that is hampering them from growing or to have the effective witness that they want to have in the world. I mean, because we all have to admit right now that for American evangelicalism, what has happened, especially in the last four years, has made people really think that evangelicals are hypocrites. There's no other way to put it nicely. Yeah, it's it's a super weird time to be, especially a post-evangelical, and to see, oh my gosh, just the the blatant hypocrisy um, of all yeah. of these things, and and to be standing there and just to say like lovingly, as lovingly as possible, like you really don't you don't see it. Oh, you don't see it. Okay. So how, how can we, how can we have a conversation right now? You know? And yeah, for me, that's the tethered connection to so many people that I grew up with, the churches that, that reared me, um, that just will never come to that theological place of, of understanding, um, of, of, of the deeply rooted things that, that we're talking about here. Um, which kind of turns me to, uh, this question, which is, you know, someone who was raised um, in white evangelicalism, but sprinted away from it as far as I could because of the many reasons you've covered in this book, my natural inclination is to just say, let the movement wither away and cease to exist. But I don't know if that's the right answer, you know, when it comes to reconciling and hope for transformation in the world. So in your opinion, you know, what should happen to the white evangelical church? Well, you know, I think that what should happen is what's probably already happening, which is we're at, all of us are at this weird moment. You asked me at the beginning of this about the pandemic, you know, white evangelical churches have had choices to make during the pandemic. Do we meet? Do we not meet? How do we meet? What do we do? And, you know, making some of those choices means that that puts a lot of people in danger, especially if you're not into wearing masks or things like that. And then you'll probably wonder, why am I talking about this? in terms of the virus. Well, I think it's very important because the virus of racism and the virus of coronavirus are probably gonna to come together to squelch this movement out. Between the two vises of what is happening right now, the, the, the issues with what we have with trying to send the virus and a lot of evangelicals say they don't even wanna get the vaccine, right? You know, it's the same, the same blindness to the racism is the same blindness to the vaccine. And so that means that you, you're not willing to grow. It means that you're not willing to see anything and that you want to say you want things to remain the same and they can't remain the same. They just won't. And this virus has proven that to all of us. So I think that what happens from here is, you know, a continued attrition, and especially when we think about what happened with January 6th. And I, I bring that insurrection up because there were so many people with, you know, Christian Christian symbolism and ideas and work for Christian institutions as somebody who just got arrested yesterday. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, how do you square this away with all the other things you said, right? You know, this is not democracy. This is what not what the founders and framers you said um, thought were very important. And so I think that besides the general public being able to see that the kinds of things that evangelicals have spoken about in the past are not the things that they seem to care about in the present, 
plus the attrition from younger members, plus the, you know, maybe the loss of, of power on certain, on a national level, but maybe not on a local or a state level. I think that this is a moment to, you know, reconsider what, what happens next before it all comes tumbling down, before you start losing more people to the virus, before you start to lose people because of, you know, people leaving, um, before you start to lose um, traction within the culture that you so claim that you want to change. And you're already losing traction in that culture because nobody believes you because they see that you're hypocritical. I think that it's, you know, pretty clear. And I address that at the end of the book by, you know, trying to reach out and say, to say, you know, what happens now that you get everything you want? Is, is this the world that you wanted? And I don't think it is the world that most evangelicals want. I think they want something different, but I don't think they know how to get to that utopia they think they want because they've done things that made that utopia not possible. So uh, I reminded of uh, Jesus sending out the disciples um, to kind of prepare the way. And he does tell them that, um, you know, essentially if, if you come into the face of opposition and there's just, there's no common ground that can be found there, just, you know, dust off the feet on your sandals and move on. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. at, at some point we talk so much about this group that may or may not ever change almost to the disregard of what we can do now as the church mm-hmm. who, who sees this and is learning and is trying to grow and trying to, to do to do better and to bring equality into this world. So can we speak briefly uh, to that? Obviously, I'm trying to respect your time, it briefly seems weird to say, hey, what's this hopeful note to end on? Um, but, but as a person of faith, you know, what should the church's role be now to pave the way for equality now? Well, I think a, a reconsideration, first of all, is what is what does your church look like right now? How is your church leadership set up? Are you in conversations with other with other groups, even if you are a predominantly white church? Are you involved with the churches in your community, black churches, Latino churches, Asian American churches? You know, where can you find where can you put together with these communities to make solidarity? I think one big issue right now for me when I think about that is um, the ways in which the Asian American community right now is experiencing violence. And I think that we it's a good time to start to think about how can you be supportive? You know, what can you do? How do you reach out? Used to be in the 50s and 60s, everybody would have sort of like these clergy meetings of pastors around the city, but it was kind of like men all getting together to go golf and stuff, right? Well, I think we need to do some of the same thing with that. How do you get involved in your community? And there's a lot of churches that got involved, you know, it have been involved with certain kinds of things. And I think that it's not just about police violence or things. We have a lot of poverty right now. We have a lot of people who lost money and lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods because of the pandemic. And I think that this is a really important time to start to think about the ways in which you, um, you know, try to help out in the community. And I know people are already doing those kinds of things, but that's one way to, you know, sort of fight racism is to, you know, like basically, can you get in the community and start to meet people other than yourselves so that you can start to think about, you know, how are we doing church? What, what are we saying? What are we doing? And, and also question the things you read and what you do. How do you, how do you learn about racism? Well, you might not be, you know, have the black friend or the brown friend or the Asian friend, somebody's gonna tell you about it, 
but what can you read? What can you study? What can you do? And how can you stay away from the kinds of battles like about critical race theory and everything else that obscure the real need to think about what is actually happening in this world and how do we need to deal with it? I think that's the place we start. So hopefully that makes somebody hopeful. I mean, it's, it's, it's small things to make something bigger happen. You know, I asked for you to end us on a hopeful note, but I wonder too, you know, if, if the experience um, right now is maybe a little bit of the exile of um, yeah. recognizing that um, for, for, for white evangelicals, for white Christianity, we've, we've put ourselves in this place. Um, and, and it's a place that it's maybe you need to wallow in the suffering of it in order to, to come through it and to learn from it. It seemed to be a pattern uh, for Israel within the scriptures um, and certainly one for, for us now. You know, as, as you think about your hope for your readers, um, what do you hope people gain from, from your book? Uh, first, I hope they gain a sense of the history that, you know, when people like me talk about racism or write about it or talk about the ways in which it has harmed um, us and others, I hope that they understand that this history is something that we all need to grapple with as Americans because it's, it's our history, right? It's not anything differently. And then second, I would hope that it makes them try to examine themselves, but to not just examine themselves, but to out, out, examine the structures that they belong to, the kinds of structures that they give acquiescence and power to, and the ways in which these structures of racism not just individual, you know, racist thoughts or feelings harm us all. And that we need to start to dismantle some of these structures as opposed to thinking about this as just individual sin. Because if we sign on to this as a culture, we are condemning ourselves to, you know, the continuation of these kinds of, you know, racial incidences and things. And so to think about this in terms of when you go into the voting booth, when you're thinking about how you know, other people have to deal with, you know, the police vis-a-vis -vis the way you have to deal with the police, maybe as a white person, or the ways in which you go shopping and nobody bothers you. But yet when I walk into the store, somebody immediately starts to follow me. I, I want you to put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a change and see what life is like for Black people and Latinos and immigrants and Asian Americans in this country and start to realize that, you know, it's not as easy for everybody else and people just can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they just can't listen to the policeman every time because even if you listen, bad things happen to you. And to pay attention to everything around you that shows you the racism every day and stop closing yourself off to it and start to think about how you can be a part of changing things. If you want to stay connected with Dr. Butler, check out her website via butler.com. Follow her on Twitter. Uh, of course, go out and purchase White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, wherever books are sold. Uh, Dr. Butler, thank you for making the time to join the conversation. Uh, we are grateful for your willingness to trouble us, to sear our soul, and to call us to change. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. 
Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.